Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you, what are two things you need to live? What would you say? Hopefully you would say food and drink. Those are the two very basic things that we need to live, aren't they, children? Without food and drink, we would die. They are absolutely essential for, for life. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely essential for spiritual and eternal life. That's what the Lord Jesus was saying when he said in John 6, we didn't read it beforehand, but in John 6, verses 53 and 54, he uh, spoke these words. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, speaking of himself, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh, he said, and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Lord is not talking literally here. He is not saying we have to physically eat, eat him and, and drink him. He, he's talking figuratively. He's saying that we cannot live spiritually and eternally without him without being united to Him by faith. Without Him, we are spiritually dead, and our only future is one of eternal death. Christ Jesus is absolutely essential for spiritual and eternal life. But He's also all-sufficient. That's also what those verses tell us. We don't need anything or anyone else but Christ and Christ alone. By Him we live. And when we are Christians, that's what we confess. That's what we believe. We believe it, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because faith in Christ and, and Christ alone is His gift. But that doesn't mean faith is easy for us. We've been looking at, looking, seeing that in the last several times as we've been going through the the, the, the last few Lord's Days with regard to the sacraments. Faith is most often quite the opposite of easy. It's hard. The Bible describes the life of faith as a fight, as a race, as a pilgrimage. It's not easy. There are enemies to our faith around us and within us. We are assaulted by temptation. We get distracted. We get distracted by the realities and responsibilities and the, simply the rush of life. And we can struggle with doubts. Is Christ alone really enough? Is He really enough for me? And we can become discouraged as we go through life and we see the reality of sin and unbelief remaining in our hearts and lives against our will. And we can wonder, does Christ really want me still? We can wonder, do I really have him? Is he really mine? And am I really his? Do I really have spiritual life, everlasting life by him? And we can struggle to keep going. What, what, what is the solution to this problem? Well, the ultimate solution is, of course, the word of God. 
Because God's word, including the verses from John 6 that I just read, they remind us over and over again, over and over again of our need of Christ and of his all-sufficiency for us. But Christ has also given us something else to help us in the life of faith. He's given us, he's given his people, his supper. And that is what we hope to focus on as we look at what God's word teaches us about the Lord's Supper in connection with the Bible's teaching faithfully summarized in Lord's Days 28 and 29 of the Heidelberg Catechism. As I've mentioned, I believe in the bulletin, we hope to approach this topic in the same way we did with baptism a few weeks ago. So today will we'll be more a sermon on the topic of the Lord's Supper in general, what it is, what it's all about. And, and then two weeks from now, Lord willing, in light of Lord's Day 30, we'll focus on the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. So our theme with God's help this afternoon is the Lord's Supper. And we'll consider, first of all, Christ's solemn institution of it. Secondly, his gospel instruction through it. And thirdly, his comforting intention with it. Well, why do we have the Lord's Supper? It's not just because the apostles of the church decided one day that it would be a good idea. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ himself instituted it. He appointed it for his New Testament church. The Bible makes that clear. It, it talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper four times. In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and then in 1 Corinthians 11. All four passages record Christ's institution of it. And all four passages highlight the solemnity, the seriousness of his institution of it. For one thing, they highlight the solemn occasion. When did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Well, the Gospels tell us that it was on the night of what? The Passover. What happened, children, at Passover? A lamb was killed. And then it was eaten with bitter herbs and, and unleavened bread. Why? Why did that happen? Because that was how God had commanded Israel to remember his bringing them out of Egypt many years before. That Passover meal was God's way of reminding them that while he had slain all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, he had brought them out. He had saved them, and he had done that only through the death and the shed blood of a lamb without blemish as their substitute. The, the Passover meal congregation was a, a joyful time of thanksgiving for God's salvation, but it was also a reminder that God's, the salvation of God's people depended on the death of a substitute. And that's what made it a solemn, that's what makes it a solemn occasion. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper on that very night. But it was also the night on which he was betrayed. Paul highlights that in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Jesus instituted the supper the very night he was about to be betrayed by the, one of his close disciples. Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. He was going to betray the incarnate Son of God and deliver him into the hands of his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. And the next day he would be crucified. He would suffer and he would die. Jesus knew all that. 
He knew this was the last meal that he would share with his disciples before his betrayal and death. And, and yet that is when he chose to institute the Lord's Supper on that solemn occasion. And doesn't that show us a couple of things? Doesn't that show us, for one, his great care and compassion for his people? He knew all the suffering. Think of it. He knew all of the suffering that he was about to endure. And yet he spent his last moments with his disciples, disciples whom he knew would scatter and abandon him at his arrest in a few hours. He spent his last moments thinking of them and of his whole church until the end of the world, caring for them, providing for them, for their comfort, instituting his supper for them. Doesn't his institution of his supper on a solemn occasion like that show us how much care and compassion and love is in his heart? And doesn't it show us too how important, how important the Lord's Supper really is? Doesn't it show us that it's not something we should, we should ignore or treat lightly? Not only because Christ instituted, on a, instituted it on a solemn occasion, but also because... His institution of it points to a solemn event. It points to Christ's death. That's what Christ's actions and words when he, when, he, when he instituted it point to. They point to his death. Remember what he did with the bread? He, he, he took it and, and, and he, he gave thanks for it. And then he broke it. And then he said, take, eat, this is my body. Which is given for you. Broken for you. Appointed to his death. And the same with the cup. In the, in the same manner, uh, he, he took the cup after supper and he, he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the New Testament or new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The bread and the wine point to his suffering and death. They don't actually become his body and blood, but they represent it. And that's why Paul wrote in in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, you do proclaim the Lord's death till He come. What a solemn, a solemn event Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper points to. And again, doesn't that highlight for us the, the, the importance of the Lord's Supper? On the one hand, it warns us, doesn't it, against coming lightly. The Lord's Supper is not like every other meal. And that's one reason why, why Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 to urge self-examination. But on the other hand, the solemn event of Christ's death that the Lord's Supper points to is also a warning. It's a warning against not coming at all, isn't it? I know that we can sometimes struggle with coming. And there can be various reasons for that. I understand that. And I know also there are times when people may need to stay away. And we'll talk about that more next time. But even with all of that, when you as a confessing member of the church of Jesus Christ continually and willfully refuse to come to the Lord's Supper when it's held, whatever your reason is, what does that say about your view of the death of Jesus Christ? 
sorry if this comes across strong. I don't mean it to come across harsh or strong. I mean it to come across in love. You need to wrestle with that question. Isn't it saying that you don't really think your death matters very much? Or that you don't really think it's enough? And isn't that coming dangerously close to trampling on the Son of God and counting His blood a common thing and insulting the Spirit of His grace, which Hebrews 10 solemnly warns us against. You see Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper not only points to the solemn event of His death, but it also comes with a solemn command. This do. This do in remembrance of me. When Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, He commanded it to be done. He did not tell us how often it's to be done, but it is to be done. And it's to be done rightly. Meaning we're to do it how? Not in remembrance of ourselves, but in remembrance of Him, and especially of His sufferings and death. Because that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Him. He has commanded that it be done in remembrance of Him. And by who? Who is to do it? Who does He command to take and to eat and to drink? Just part of the church? No, the whole church, every living member thereof, every believer, no matter how weak in faith they are. When he instituted it, think of this, he didn't give it, he didn't give it to some of his disciples. He gave it to all of them, except Judas, I believe John 13 verse 30 indicates that he left before the Lord's Supper happened. But, but he commanded all of them, all those of his true disciples, to take and eat and drink. Isn't that amazing? When you think of what he knew about these men. He knew how weak his, they were. He knew they understood almost nothing after three years of, of, of being with him. He knew that in a few hours they would abandon him. He knew that Peter would deny him that very night. He knew that Thomas would later doubt him. And yet he said to them, yes, he commanded them all, take, eat, drink. In spite of their weaknesses, he commanded them, all his disciples, to do it. And Matthew, Matthew's gospel, which we, we read, actually highlights that by recording that extra word that Jesus spoke when he gave the cup. In, uh, in verse 27, it says there that he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. That word all, it's a little unfortunate in our translation here, but that word all is not referring to the wine in the cup. It's referring to the disciples. Christ is not saying to them, drink all of the cup. He's saying, drink of it, all of you. Isn't that beautiful? He knows what we're like. Doesn't that highlight the gracious love of Christ for all of his people? Doesn't that melt your heart? 
And shouldn't that encourage you to come, dear trembling believer, in Jesus? If I may refer to the words of the Catechism, hasn't Christ commanded you and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him? Let us be careful. Let us be careful that we do not despise the Lord's Supper or treat it lightly. Let us make use of it. Let us make use of it. Let us do it in remembrance of Christ because it's a solemn institution for his church. When we have it, it doesn't mean that, that we are barred from it. We haven't been doing that. But when we come in repentance and faith, he will receive us. Uh, but maybe you ask, well, what does it mean? And that brings us to our second heading, Christ's gospel instruction through the Lord's Supper. What is Christ's message? What is he communicating and teaching and revealing to us through this sacrament? He's simply communicating. He's instructing us in the gospel. He's illuminating, really, the gospel for us. Now so, oh, for, for one thing, through the Lord's Supper, he tells us, he, he tells us that he suffered and died for us, for his people, for all who look to him in faith. Christ makes that clear in the words that he spoke when he appointed it. What did he say when he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it unto his disciples? He said, this is my body which is given, which is broken for you. And the same with the cup. This is my blood of the New Testament or the New Covenant which is shed for you and for many for the remission, the forgiveness of sin. In other words, through the Lord's Supper, Christ, who is God, the Son made flesh, is telling us that He suffered and died as our substitute in our place, on our behalf. That is gospel. That is good news. Think about it. Imagine, imagine it this way. Imagine... Just for a moment now. So someone has a fancy high-end sports car and imagine they let you borrow it for a day. But they warn you that if you damage it, if you crash it, you're going to have to pay for the damages. Or buy a new one if it isn't fixable. And so imagine you, you, you take this car out and but then you go and do exactly what your friend warned you not to do. And you don't just do it by accident, but, but you, you do it on purpose. You, you completely, totally, well, now what? You're on the hook. You owe that person a new car. But there's no way you can do that. You don't have that kind of money, and you never will. But what we did by our sin is a little like that, but even worse. When God first made man, he gave him a garden, and he told him to keep it, and he gave him everything he needed. And then he warned him, he warned him, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you're going to surely die. And yet that's exactly what Adam did. And we in him, we took what God had given and entrusted to us and we totaled it. And we didn't do it accidentally. We did it deliberately and willfully. We ruined everything. And so we came under the sentence, God's sentence of death. Not just spiritual and physical death, but eternal death. That is what God's justice demands. And left to ourselves, there, there is no way out. There is no hope. But the gospel is that the eternal God himself, the creator and the owner of everything, has come down in the person of his son and has suffered and has died that death for sinners. In the place of sinners. 
in the place of His people. And, and who are His people? They are everyone who repents and believes in Him. And through the Lord's Supper, you see, when you come in faith, and, and however weak and trembling that faith may be, however shaky it is, when you come as a poor and needy, repentant sinner looking to Christ, He is teaching you, He is instructing you. that He suffered and died for you. In your place. When you see with your eyes the bread of the Lord broken for you and the cup communicated or given to you, Christ himself, <coughs> Christ himself is telling you that his body was offered and broken on the cross for you and his blood shed for you. It should have been your body that was broken and mine. It should have been our blood that was shed. It should have been us who suffered all the agonies of hell. But it wasn't. It was his. It was him. He gave his body and he shed his blood for you in your place as your substitute, just like the lamb and the Passover. That's what his words with the bread and the wine mean when he says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for you and for many, for the remission, for the forgiveness, for the removal, for the cancellation of our sins. It means he suffered and died in your place. What a wonderful gospel instruction. But that's not all. Through the Lord's Supper, Christ tells us not only that He suffered and died for us, but also that He feeds and He nourishes our souls for everlasting life with His crucified body and shed blood. You see, at the Lord's Supper, Christ didn't just command His disciples to look at the broken bread and, and, and the cup as the symbols of His body, given and broken for them and, and His blood shed for them. He gave it to them and He commanded them to eat and to drink. What was He teaching them by that? What's he teaching us? He's teaching and assuring us that he gives his body and blood to us for our spiritual life and strength. He's teaching us that he not only gave himself for us, but that he gives himself to us to feed and nourish our souls to everlasting life as assuredly as we receive and we taste the bread and drink the cup of certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. You see, children, when you eat and drink something, what happens? What happens to what you eat and drink? It, it becomes part of you, doesn't it? It becomes one with you. And under the blessing of God, it nourishes and it strengthens you and it gives you life. And, and so when Christ commands us to eat the bread and to drink the cup at His supper as symbols of His body and blood, He's teaching us that He gives Himself to us. He becomes one with us. He unites Himself to us and so nourishes us and strengthens us to everlasting life. And again, isn't that a wonderful gospel instruction? Because you see, the reality is that apart from Him, we have no life. Spiritually. Remember what Jesus said in the text that we read at the beginning of the sermon in John 6, verse 53, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
Apart from Christ, we are dead. There is no life in us. Yes, we're physically alive, but we're not alive spiritually. And that's really what real life is. It's spiritual life. It's eternal life. But we don't have that if we're apart from Christ. And then we are really nothing more than dead men walking. And, and all we have to look forward to is a future of eternal death. And that means that we need Christ then, not only to give himself for us, but to give himself to us. And praise God, that's what he does. That's what he does in the gospel. The gospel tells us that he gives himself to his people by his spirit. We see that. We see that, for example, in John 14, verse 17. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus promises his disciples that the spirit will dwell with them and shall be in them. And then in the next verse, in verse 18, still referring to the Spirit's coming, he says, I will come to you. And then in verses 19 and 20, because I live, you shall live also. And at that day, he goes on to say, you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. So by giving His Spirit, Christ gives Himself to His people and He dwells, He abides in them, He causes them to live spiritually. That's what the Gospel declares. And that's what Christ teaches us and shows us through the Lord's Supper. He teaches His people who as poor and needy sinners are looking to Him as our, our only hope for real life. He's teaching and assuring us that He gives Himself to us, that He not only is with us and not only is for us, but He's also in us, feeding and nourishing our souls to everlasting life, as assuredly as we receive and taste the bread and the cup as the signs of His body and blood. He's teaching us of the pardon of sin and the eternal life that we have through faith in Him and in all His sufferings and death. And he's teaching us of the continual growing union and communion, the fellowship that we have with him by his spirit. So that though he is in heaven and though we are on earth, we are notwithstanding flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And that we live and are governed by one spirit, the spirit of Christ. Do you see? It's just the Lord's Supper. How full, how full of gospel instruction it is. Doesn't that make you, make you want to come? whenever we have it, to come in repentance and faith and eat and drink in remembrance of Him. Not only because of His gospel instruction through it, but also, and here we come to our third point, also because, because of His comforting intention with it. Why did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Why did He, the same night in which He was betrayed, take bread and give thanks and break it and say, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And why did he, after the same manner, take the cup, but when he had supped and say, this cup is a new testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. What was his purpose with the solemn institution of it and with his gospel instruction through it? It is, it was, and it is to comfort and to encourage and to strengthen his people in faith. That's his intention with the Lord's Supper. And he does that in at least two ways. First of all, by assuring us, by assuring us of his all-sufficiency. That's one reason. 
why he calls the bread his body and the cup his blood. It's to help us understand and believe that he is the all-sufficient Savior. You see, Christ, Christ, by calling the bread his body, by calling the cup his blood, he's saying, just like the bread and the wine, look at, just like they support your earthly lives, so my crucified body and my shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby your souls are fed to eternal life. He's saying here, I'm all sufficient. I'm all you need. You don't need anyone or anything else. That's what Christ is saying in the Lord's Supper. And we need that, don't we? I do. Our faith in Christ is so often so weak. It's so often faltering. We get distracted and we struggle with doubt and we fight against unbelief and the battle is hard and the race is long and our faith is like the ship that was caught in the storm in Acts, Acts 27. It's in danger of, of breaking apart or sinking in the face of the opposition from within and from without. And that's why Christ has given us His supper, you see, to strengthen us like the ropes that they threw around the ship to keep it together, to remind us and assure us he is all sufficient. So we can trust him. And that means the size of your faith doesn't matter for coming to the Lord's Supper. Your faith may be as small as a mustard seed, but that doesn't mean you should stay away from the table. If anything, it means you should come. Because the supper is for people who want their faith to be strengthened. And Christ has given his supper exactly for people like you. For people whose faith is weak. For people like me. For people whose faith in Christ needs to be strengthened. His intention with his supper is to comfort his people. And he does that by assuring us of his all-sufficiency but also by assuring us of our union with Him by faith, and therefore of our salvation in Him. Again, that's why He gives us the bread and He gives us the cup and actually calls them His body and blood. You see, by doing that, and by our eating and, uh, our eating and our drinking, as it were, His body and blood in remembrance of Him, Christ is seeking to assure us that we really are united with Him that we are really partakers of His true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ wants to assure us of at His table. He wants to assure us of our union with Him and therefore of our salvation in Him. He wants to assure us that all His sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own person suffered and made satisfaction. For our sins to God. Do you see what a comforting intention Christ has with his supper? What an encouragement that should be when we struggle with the assurance of our salvation. Lack of full assurance is not a reason to stay away. It's a reason to come. To come and eat and drink in remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper is Christ's gift for his church, for his believing people. Oh, let us be thankful for it. And let us love it. 
and let us make diligent use of it. And let us be careful never to profane it. How important it is and to examine ourselves before coming and Lord willing, next time we'll look more closely at that. But what if you are here and you do not know Christ? You're not looking to Him in repentance and faith. What message is here tonight for you? Well, I love Matthew's account of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. Because in that account, there is an implicit invitation, an implicit, implicit call from Christ to you, to all who are yet outside of Him. Because what does He say? What does He say when He, when he has the cup? In verse 28, He says, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed not just for you, to his disciples, which is shed for many, many for the remission of sins. Isn't that an invitation to come? To come to him for salvation in repentance and faith because he has shed his blood for many. Oh, then come to him. Come to him because he calls you and he will receive you. Dear congregation, what a precious gift Christ has given us with the Lord's Supper. Let it move us to trust and to love and to worship Him more and more and more until the day He comes again and we eat and we drink with Him in glory. Amen.